When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Is there a way to play this volatility? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Joining me today is Jem Carson, founder of Kai Volatility. Hi, Jem. How are you? Hey, guys. Good to see you. It's fantastic to have you on. I think the first time on the Daily Briefing. Um, and we're lucky because you're a longtime macro uh, person. You're an expert in volatility. And boy, we've got these are pretty turbulent times we're in. So you know, maybe let's just start out broadly and, you know, give me a sense of what's top of mind for you as we look around the world and we see what's happening in currencies. I mean, the yen at a 24-year low today, we have UK, the UK government bond market all over the place uh, off the Bank of England. And it's again, once again today in turmoil. So what are you looking at as you look across the global economy right now? Yeah, I mean, you can't start a conversation about macro uh, in this environment without talking about inflation. Right. Uh, I think that's where we have to start. Uh, I've been saying this for going on two years now, but uh, the reality is that in, uh, inflation and the inflation that we're seeing is uh, is a function. And we've seen this throughout history of uh, a, a rebalancing of inequality. Right. Uh, of, a, of a people people caring about the inequality that the Fed has uh, created over 40 years. Um, we started seeing this about, uh, you know, a decade ago with Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party and whatnot. But it took a while. Uh, it took the, you know, the right coming left and the, the left going even more left with Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. Right. And then it took a, a spark, which was COVID. Um, so all that fiscal policy, an order of magnitude more than we've ever seen, paired with all the knock on effects that happen that come with that, um, which are uh, competition game, global uh, competition over resources, whether that those resources are commodities, whether those resources are are, are cash, right? Uh, cash is getting more expensive, um, or or labor. Uh, all of those things, um, you know, the, drive protectionism, drive uh, competition, et cetera. So that's the framework where we'll start. I know that's a big picture kind of way to start about uh, to, to talk about now specifics. That inflation, unfortunately, uh, is not going away. It's structural, and these these things we've seen, and that's the big takeaway. You know, it's not transitory. We've been saying that for two years. It, it took a while for other people to catch on, but the reality is that that that's the truth. And not only is it structural and not going away, um, the Fed's attempt to control structural inflation with cyclical measures um, is not going to work. Um, it, it, it'll work in the short term, but it, they can't control structural inflation with cyclical measures. They can slow short-term cyclical inflation. Um, and ironically, trying to deal with structural inflation with cyclical measures ultimately drives worse structural inflation. And I think that's a big, important takeaway uh, that a lot of people are missing. Uh, for 40 years, markets have operated where people just think about cyclical inflation, that's it. Structural inflation hasn't been part of the story. So it's easy for people to just say, hey, look, if the economy slows, if we go into recession, right, inflation's going to slow and we're going to solve this problem. Because that's how things have broadly worked in a, in a control, controlled monetary policy-driven economy. And that's not where we are. That's not what's happening. And again, uh, as, as I've uh, expressed 
uh, many times before cyclical um, measures are going to make it worse. What do I mean by that? Why are cyclical um, measures by the Fed, uh, you know, attempts to slow down the demand side uh, of the economy going to make things worse? Quite simply, monetary policy, which is the only tool the Fed has, um, drives is, is a supply side economic measure. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, when you when you lower interest rates, when you do QE, you send money to capital. You send money to capital markets. You send money to corporations. You send money to uh, wealthy individuals. You do not send it to people at the bottom who spend their money. You send it to people who invest. All that money ultimately, or like the overwhelming majority, flows to corporations. Um, that is a supply side economic approach. Uh, what does that do? That means uh, you know corporations can produce more things. Uh, it drives globalization, it, it drives technological innovation, it drives competition, right? All the things that we saw for 40 years that were ultimately deflationary. The more monetary policy we did, the more deflation we got for 40 years. I talk about this as sending money to planet Palo Alto, this wonderful, right, planet on the other, you know, other side of the galaxy, yeah, which is a, you know, and again, I'll, I'll keep using that because it is, it is, you know, a great picture, but we're sending money there. The velocity of that money is zero. It's not entering our economy. Um, it's entering, uh, you know, the 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 powerful, all-knowing people of planet Palo Alto's economy, and they send back to our our economy goods supply. This is why it's supply side economics, um, and that supply is ultimately not inflationary. Shockingly, it's uh, deflationary, right? Because we're we're creating Teslas and Ubers and Amazons and all these wonderful innovations, which reduce the need for labor. Uh, which ultimately uh, provide more supply on the market. So uh, ironically, uh, we've been doing monetary policy uh, full force for 40 years, and we've created structural deflation by doing it. And now we are pulling that money away in order to create a, a cyclical slowdown. But structurally, that's going to cause more inflation, right? Because we're, we're not we're doing the opposite of supply side measures, which is what we actually need, ironically. We need structural supply to meet the demand that we've been driving. So uh, through through all this all these fiscal measures, and so we're not meeting supply demand with supply. Uh, we're doing the opposite, and so we're exacerbating structural problems. Um, that also exacerbates problems because the more money you take away, uh, not only do you slow technology and supply, but you re reverse globalization broadly uh, from a more structural pr perspective. Again, that protectionism, all those things, and then the last knock-on effect, um, you actually increase. For the, the one thing that does directly affect uh, the middle class on down, which is the cost of housing, you uh, you increase the cost of housing by increasing interest rates because ultimately rents, as we've been seeing, uh, increase as you increase interest rates because people can't afford to buy homes anymore. So the, the housing part of inflation has been structurally going higher and everybody seems shocked by this, that we, like, how is this uh, housing, you know, how are rents not coming down given uh, that we're incre increasing interest rates because people can't afford to buy homes, so they have to rent. So, and there's a supply demand imbalance. So, so there, there's structural exacerbating forces by raising interest rates the way we are to cyclically slow things. And, uh, and uh, again, we dove right into kind of the big picture, but that's the big takeaway. And that's the important kind of thing for people. Important. We, we, we do a takeaway usually at the end, but I love front-loading because if it's really important to understand, and by the way, like if I had a mic, I would just drop the mic right now. <laughs> a, par, a, a really, really masterful explanation of, I think, why we all intuitively feel 
like policymakers are screwing up. Like we, we sort of everyone keeps saying, like, I don't understand. Why do they have to, you know, destroy the economy and kill us in order to get inflation down? And it doesn't look like it's working anyway. Like people sort of can understand that on on some intuitive level, but that's a really sort of helpful framework for us to think about why it doesn't appear to be working and why we're sort of starting to see all these strains. So so let me ask you something. Um, I think this addresses one big issue out there. So when people, when you were talking about planet Palo Alto, Silicon Valley, for those of you maybe are don't, don't know the zip code, but when you, when, when we have easy money, we heard all the time, and this is, I think what sucks people into thinking that somehow fed policy is going to be able to right the ship here. We had this era of easy money. We're just throwing money out the window into the economy and everybody gave everybody these uh, government benefits and we're just flush with all this cash. And now they've got to tighten things up and suck it out. The way you just described that, that does not sound like money circulating in the real economy. Yeah, I mean, look at, at the end of the day, uh, that 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 will slow. You know, uh, these effects will slow demand. I'm not saying that they won't slow demand, but uh, it's all a function of how much uh, you're affecting things cyclically, like in, in the short term, versus what you're doing structurally. And we're not solving the problem; we're actually making it worse. Um, we saw this in the '60s and '70s. This is not just speculation. This is not me playing with a toy model. This is what happened in the 60s and 70s. It started with the Great Society program with LBJ. Uh, we tried to do cyclical measures. The, you know, people always talk about William McChesney Martin and Arthur Burns being kind of asleep at the wheel. But, you know, and I've said this before, but, you know, William McChesney Martin uh, increased rates by seven and a half, you know, Fed funds rate by seven and a half percent. Uh, Arthur Burns, who everybody kind of uh, lambasts as kind of the the one responsible for for continuing structural inflation, raised Fed funds by ten and a half percent. You know, the reality is those things ultimately made the problem worse. Uh, it drove more populism. Why did it make it worse? It made it worse not just for the reasons I mentioned before, but the more inflation we see, more structural inflation we see, the the more people on the bottom who are uh, you know are driving these structural effects. Uh, are are hurt by inflation. You know, the more fiscal policy, the more demand on politicians we have, and the more uh, you know international strife that we see. Again, people think the OPEC crisis of the '70s, right? The Vietnam War, um, uh, the you know the the fiscal policy we saw. All of these things were inflationary pressures, but they're all independent events. Everybody thinks. Isn't it weird that we're starting to see the same things over again? Uh, probably not a coincidence, right? Uh, why are we seeing war? Why are we seeing, uh, uh, you know, those with power in, in the commodity markets flexing their muscles? Right at the same time, we're seeing populism and inflation because these things are all connected. They're all connected. You go from a cooperation game when the when the elites and the powerful corporations have money, and and you're doing trade across countries that people aren't. Um, you know, uh, there's no resource scarcity. Everybody's working together. It's a cooperation game. But the second we start worrying about inequality and the people at home uh, want things fixed right for themselves, they want more uh, labor, wants more power, they want more say at the table, we want to rebalance these things. Now you're in a competition game. Now resource scarcity, like I mentioned, commodities, labor, money, all these things everybody's scrambling to get. And that drives a time when weak countries feel an existential threat and need to, to, to do actions like we're seeing in Russia, uh, like we're seeing in China. Right. Uh, you know, because they feel that they're 
threatened, um, A, and then it's a time when we see those with the resources and the inputs being able to now, given bifurcation, flex their muscles a bit and, you know, really, uh, you know, have sway over, you know, the situation at hand. So um, we will continue to see commodity, uh, you know, uh, as we saw, and again, we've called for all these things. This is not me saying this ex post facto, like we, we said, expect, you know, OPEC to flex their muscles, uh, the SPR is bleeding dry. They have more leverage. We're in a bifurcated, uh, bifurcating economy, world economy. Uh, guess what? You know, you look at incentives, you see results. Well, the incentives are that, uh, you know, the, these entities have more power in this, in this competition game and they start to do these things. Um, why are Russia and China the ones that are, are you know, again, uh, trying to, to push back? Why do they feel so threatened? Uh, Russia and China happen to be the two countries with the biggest demographic uh, structural problems uh, going forward in the next 20 years. Um, China's probably going to, to drop by about 500 million population in the next 25 years or 30 years, um, you know, from 1.2 billion to 700 million. Uh, they are becoming more and more dependent on, uh, given that shrinking of uh, technology and, and, you know, manufacturing know-how at a time when they don't have those things. They also don't have the inputs they need to manufacture. So hence the alliance with Russia and and again, uh, those th the things that are happening there. So it's a much bigger picture. I don't want to oversimplify things, but it's important to, to look at these trends and understand why they happen. And it's, I'm, I'm referencing the 60s and 70s. This is not the only time we've seen this, right? We saw a similar thing during World War II in the 1930s. There's, there's the repeating um, you know, cycles uh, throughout history uh, as a function of, of these two things. But the driving forces are uh, capital versus labor. Uh, natural competition, which is kind of natural selection, uh, free market economics, economics, whatever you want to call it, and, and against it, pulling against it, this idea of equality and fairness and populism. And from a philosophical perspective, those things, the left and the right, have been in opposition since time incarnate. And, and those things uh, continue to, to drive big major cycles. And it's more than just cyclical Right. Uh, do we, you know, can we slow down the things in the short term or speed them up? These are structural effects that have to do with balance between these two uh, major powers. Absolutely. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So we have a great question. Um, we've got great questions coming in, and I want to try to weave some of them in right away. Um, if you have one, you know the drill, drop them in the YouTube chat, in the comment section on our website, or you can. Twitter at Ask RV, um, and I, I'm already going to say we're never going to have enough time. <laughs> we're about the layer, but but we're going to have Gem uh, on again. But let's scratch the surface here. Um, we have uh, a question about um, if you uh, from Francisco on the RV site. Is there anything that can break the trend of populism? If populism, if this swing, you know, with the inequalities and swing to is what's part of what's feeding into the response to that, feeding into structural inflation. Francisco's asking, can anything break the trend of populism? How do demographics play into the inflation framework? And I would add, if, if the Fed doesn't have the tools to address this, who does? 
Yeah. So, um, so dem so let's let's start with uh, how do we stop this? Look, these are structural big cycle uh, things. These are decade, multi-decade long structural things. They, this inequality has built, been built over forty years. Um, you can't just go snap your fingers and fix inequality. If you can, you can speed it up. Uh, you're going to get a bigger crisis sooner, uh, and then you know. Uh, <laughs> So you can either do it over time and and do it gradually, um, or you can you can do it all at once. Um, but but there are problems with with each approach. Um, it's not a straight line, uh, so there's a lot of things that can happen uh, one year, two year in between to bend that trend uh, to that that may, like I said, elongate it in some ways uh, while making it uh, worse uh, over the long run, there or or uh, shorten it and make it less bad over the long run. So, so there are ways to affect these trends, but they are major forces that you have to con that we have to contend with, if if we want more equality, and 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 so that's the big question. If we're willing to just be raw and tooth and claw and run, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, when I say we, I mean uh, the populace, right? The people who ultimately in a democracy have that decision. If we were an autocracy and we said, well, we don't care about the people, right? Uh, we have absolute control, uh, you know, free market economics on steroid again, let's go. Uh, yeah, we could avoid this. We'd ultimately make it worse. And in those general situations, that leads to let them eat. That's basically let them eat cake, which eventually leads to something bigger in another way, historically. But we we have a democracy. So these things are these are pressure, you know, uh, you know, the releases of pressure. So we don't have revolution in theory. But so given that we're in a democracy here and, and that populism um, you know, the people are turning to populism. I, I think it's going to be hard to avoid. We can affect things on, on the margin, but, but um, you know, uh, changing it altogether after 40 years of, of uh, in, you know, increasing inequality and not just slightly increasing inequality. If you look at Gini coefficients, like, you know, we're at record, record levels of, of inequality and, and, and we understand why that, that is uh, as a function of monetary policy. So that was the first question. Uh, your second question, <laughs> now I lost track. What was your second question? How can I actually three at one time? So, um, I, the, the second question was um, Francisco asking about demographics. Oh yes, Thank critical. De yeah, demographics is destiny, right? You've heard that saying before. A hundred percent truth. That is, uh, you know, much like inequality. These things are are, uh, you know, they are measures that are important. They ultimately drive certain incentives. Uh, demographics, you know, direct input to supply and demand, obviously, and and the baby boomers are are dying off. Uh, the uh, you know in the U.S. The, the the millennials, which is the next bubble, are coming to their prime uh, ages of of production and household formation. That's a critical part of this. Um, the millennials. It's not just because of the bubbles demographically, but it's about who these people are and who they've become as a function of the cycle they went through. Um, and the cycle that the millennials went through is a time of uh, technological revolution driven by free money, uh, a time of massive inequality. Uh, so a feeling of things aren't fair. Um, you look at, uh, you know, during the 60s, what was the big thing everybody's talking about? Equality and equity. Guess what we're talking about this decade? Equality and equity, because the millennial generation has been in it broad time frame where they were labor, they didn't have the capital, and they've been falling behind They're at 40% of where the baby boomers were at this time in their lives in terms of wealth and household formation. Uh, these things lead to a feeling of, uh, hey, this isn't fair. There's, this isn't just, uh, you know, and, and so that generation overwhelmingly is driving populism because they feel that this 
system hasn't been fair. So it's not just the demographics of demand and supply, which is important because you have a bubble of people who have, are at the 40th, you know, at 40% of where the baby boomers were now entering uh, their prime spending and buying years. But they're also behind, right? If you're at the 40th percentile, you have a lot of catching up to do uh, in order to get to where you need to. And so we're they're demanding help from government to help catch up. Uh, and, and so, you know, big demographic bubble coming to their prime spending years as they need to catch up is a demand, you know, is, is a demand push. Um, and, and it also importantly drives this populism we're speaking of and this rebalancing. So, so absolutely demographics has everything to do with it. Uh, it's important to though, note that that age is also, uh, you know, uh, a function of, of class. So, you know, late, late, the labor class and the younger generation, um, are one in one because people, when they come out of college, don't have money. They're not the capital class. They are the working class until they build their capital base. Um, so, so again, uh, uh, you know, it drives a lot of other trends. And I've talked about this too. I don't want to get too deep into this, but Bitcoin, right? Everybody's like, oh, Bitcoin, it's a revolution, et cetera. I'm like, fine. Uh, but why Bitcoin? Like, we could have gone, the millennial generation, that younger generation could have gone anywhere because this generation has been marked by a period of unfairness that's driven by monetary policy, uh, a, a feeling of uh, you know technology can solve all of our problems because they grew up in a time of technological revolution and a need to catch up. So speculative assets like calls and you know YOLOing you know Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, speculative assets. So like it makes a ton of sense if you just look at who these people are, why they are uh, in the situation they are, and and. and and it's a function of, of the cycle and, and the system. And so demographics is 100% a major driving force this on many, many levels. So I, I just want to pause for one second to, to really just underscore that when you have, when you're looking at markets, and I think this is what we've been trying to drive home on what we're doing on the platform and why we're bringing guests like Jem on um, to the daily briefing is that to be able to make decisions about your investments, you have to have a view on this larger framework, right? So Jem's laying out his about how he feels about populism, why he thinks inflation is structural. The, the bets he makes are going to be within that framework. So if he's viewing things like Bitcoin in that way, that's going to influence what he did. I think that's so important to bring up, Jim, because otherwise you're just like swacking at the pinata without any idea. Uh, and, and it's hard to understand. I'm going to bring up an, an example. Um, we have a question, Dr. Jane. On Twitter, what outcome tomorrow does the commodity sell-off most align with? I'm thinking a low print. I'm thinking that she thinks because commodities sold off, they've got to guess about inflation. But there's a million other factors that are influencing what's happening commodities as well. You know, it's so complex. With that framework you just laid out, what do you like? What do you feel positive about? What are you most concerned about in the global economy? Because it sounds like you think central bankers are just ham-fisted here like they just not addressing the problem correctly so are you are you more worried more bearish than bullish and what are you looking at yeah i, I think the big takeaway based on my view is that um all of the narrative about um you know recession uh you know are we going to slow the economy uh it's it's uh, incredibly simplistic it's two-dimensional um, and it misses the broader uh, multidimensional aspects of what's happening here. And so, yes, uh, is the Fed going to ultimately slow 
uh, the economy somewhat, uh, yes, uh, via a trickle-down effect by slowing money to corporations. There'll be uh, less, less employed people. But that effect relative to the other uh, structural uh, effects of, of more fiscal policy as the economy slows, right, as a reaction, um, again, uh, less money to, you know, less supply side, uh, you know, less supply in the economy, uh, more uh, geopolitical stress coming from this competition game. All of these things are in opposition to that. So ultimately, yeah, in the short term, we can slow, um, you know, inflation uh, a, a bit uh, via via a recession. But you know, all of that is is ultimately, if we have structural inflation, uh, you know, a side note to the bigger picture. Uh, you know, the second we slow, the Fed will ultimately have to you know, call it a pivot or slow the the rate of increases in, in uh, interest rates as uh, they achieve their goal of recession. But what we're going to see as a result when that happens, much like we did in the 60s and 70s, is inflation going structurally higher than, you know, again, once higher than it was before and long-term rates ultimately climbing, which then will drive inventory, more inventory build, more uh, demand being brought forward, a lot of other things that will then take hold. The, the Fed is in and along the steps right now of, of losing control the long end of the curve, it, it will take a bit of time for people to kind of come to terms with this and realize this. Um, but but in the short term, uh, they are uh, trying to control a cyclical political short term uh, kind of CPI number, which is ultimately not what matters. Um, uh, again, and, and my point is what they do ultimately is a short term effect. Uh, and, and we should be thinking about the big long-term uh, you know, trends, which ultimately is what matters. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N ads.com. Do, by the way, all of them are in Washington at the bank, which is which has been interesting because they're sort of lobbing bombs from down there every time one of them speaks. You know, we see the market sort of move really drastically. There are some people who say that they they're they're just going to keep hiking until they get inflation down. If they're not able to, it sounds like you think they're going to have to turn around and they'll inflict so much damage they'll have to stop and pivot. So you yeah, they're going to have to. Everybody everybody again looks at Arthur Burns and says, oh, and and you know William McChesney Martin like, oh, they weren't strong enough. They didn't they didn't do what Volcker did, right? But the reality is they did dramatic things and they both caused dramatic recessions. Um, you know, uh, if you look at Arthur Burns in particular, he drove the biggest recession since the Great Depression in 74, 75. Uh, and it was such a deep recession. It was so unpopular that, yeah, the Fed had to stop. <laughs> yeah, at some point, you flicked enough pain on people and the economy. It's so unpopular. You are not going to be able to do more. There's just a limit uh, to, to what the Fed can do, given the amount of pain they're, they're inflicting. And when they do, uh, given that they're not actually dealing with structural inflation, uh, you know, this demand push economy, which we're in and we will continue to be in for some time, will run hot. Um, you can counteract counteract how hot that economy is is running cyclic, cyclically for a while, but the structural strength of demand 
will just come back for relative supply in spades after that. And, and especially given commodities, which again, I, I don't want to get dive too much into the commodity trade, but but given how how inelastic supply is, how little production, you know, uh, real supply, because again, uh, uh, of the underinvestment there that we've had uh, for other reasons, um, you know, that will ultimately drive a, a, a macro cyclical cycle for commodities, which will exacerbate things as well. So you're are you bullish commodities from here? Very, very. Are you bearish equities? Um, well, sixty-eight to eighty-two, and again, are we talking nominal or real equities? I, I think equities uh, on a nominal basis over the next decade are going nowhere. Um, so that doesn't mean we're going to crash. But again, sixty-eight to eighty-two, uh, uh, and we're not exactly there, but it's a good relative metric. Uh, there was just less demand for stocks because interest rates are higher, right? If, if you can go buy a bond at twenty percent, why are you going to go put your money in the market? The, the Tina effect, which everybody was talking about, is now in reverse. Uh, nobody's talking about that. Not to mention, there's just less capital sloshing around in general for bonds or stocks. So now stocks are um, out of favor. Everybody talks about you know discounted cash flows and multiples, but the reality is that you know multiple the PE multiple for the uh, for the S and P has been anywhere from four to forty. Um, you know, and you know that can change by an order of, of magnitude, which. It doesn't make for a very good pricing model and and, and uh, fundamentally uh, not a good metric uh, for when to buy or sell stocks historically. Um, you know, the reality is during periods of inflation, higher rates, we see multiple contraction. And that is a function of just less demand, supply and demand, less demand for stocks. Uh, but when, when wealthy people have less money and people at the bottom have more money, it's not a supply side economic driven model. It's a demand side driven model. And that drives more demand for goods, which causes inflation, which drives a, a move out of money from the investment side. It's not rocket science. And, and, and you know, we're likely to see multiple contraction. We're also likely to see a, a hotter uh, GDP growth during the 60s and 70s during that period. And then this is a perfect example, 68 to 82, 14 years, we grew above trend uh, in real terms, not just you know, the economy ran hot. It was a very healthy, strong economy. You don't hear about that. The market did awful. The market is not the economy. People confuse that all the time. I think we'll get margin compression over this period, right? Based on deglobalization, based on less technological advancement, based on all the things that went the other way during a supply side driven model. Uh, we'll get margin compression. Uh, growth, uh, GDP growth will actually hang in there relatively. Yeah, we'll have a recession here, but it won't be particularly deep, I don't think. And then, and then we're going to, uh, you know, continue to the price to sales will will normalize based on on inflation and and, and broad growth. And and guess what? We're rebalancing things, which uh, things just went too far. The pendulum swings. That's what a cycle is. The pendulum swung too far, and now it's swinging the other way. Unfortunately, these time periods are more difficult. It's hard to invest. It's hard to, you know, you're, there's a lot more global strife. Uh, it, it tends to be a time of, of, um, uh, of not just rebalancing in terms of markets, but a time of rebalancing in terms of policy. Uh, it's a time when countries actually, uh, actually, because there are bigger problems, solve problems. Uh, the U.S. Uh, you know, made a lot of changes in the 30s. It made a lot of changes in the 60s and 70s. Why? Because we were, at, you know, at war. There are crises, and we solved a lot of problems. And, and in the long run, that's a good thing. And it'll lead to the next eventual boom, um, as long as we don't blow ourselves up along the way, which is highly unlikely, in my opinion. Um, so, uh, but that's a, a positive note. But it's going to be a tough decade. Well, I. We're going to end it on that positive note because it puts it in much more of a sort of historical, almost political framework. And I think it's so important for us to think about that concept of de demand 
um, led economy and not a supply led economy. Um, and so for some people, you know, it may be not going to feel horrible if you were on the labor side of the equation. And I don't mean sort of unionized. I just mean, as you put out, you know, like in, in part of the economy that's been feeling left behind. Um, but I do think they're big. It sounds like you're saying they're big question marks globally. Like this is a it's, it, is, it is a very volatile time um, as we leave out. And, th and that's the takeaway I'm going to think about and that we're going to keep talking about is this sort of how this fits in. Um, if you think about it from that perspective, your bullish commodities, equities may go sideways. What about bonds? Because there's sort of bonds if you're investing in them and are trying to sort of, you know, think about rates. And then there are bonds for people who are, I don't want to say pensioners, but who just want to get that yield. How do we need to think about investing in bonds from the different class of investors? Yeah, I mean, look, it's uh, we're at the beginning of a macro cycle towards higher and higher rates. Uh, but and, and important to note the beginning. So duration is your problem. The, the duration is what will kill you, as we've seen this year, right? Um, so uh, you know when you're looking at the bond market, uh, yeah, I mean I think there's there's a lot of ways underneath the hood to get, you know, again the curve is inverted. You can go get a three month, six month yield, um, and there are ways to to use that those bonds uh, then as collateral against other trades as well. Not to get this too complicated, but you can. Uh, you know, uh, generate a nice yield underneath other things that you're doing. And, and so, yeah, you should absolutely be doing that. You should keep your duration to a minimum um, because of, of what, you know, again, based on my view, uh, you know, we're going to see higher and higher rates in that long term and you don't want to be exposed to that. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, bonds should, you know, are a way to, uh, again, generate a, a more inflation, a bigger inflation hedge to your portfolio, which you you want to do. Um, and you should absolutely do that. I think there are you know, other ways to do that as well. Um, I think there are plenty. I, I want to be clear. I'm not bearish all stocks, uh, bearish indices, uh, you know, in real terms. Um, you know, discounted cash flows will matter again. I know that sounds crazy. Uh, you know, after 40 years, you sound like the crazy man mumbling to himself in the corner if you talk about value. But the reality is cash flows matter. They put a put on a business and put, that cash flow in the short term hasn't mattered when cash is free. But if you generate cash uh, and are able to fund uh, things when other people aren't, you can buy other corporations when you see creative destruction and uh, you can you can invest in things when others can't. You can buy back your stock, et cetera. So those um, you know, corporations that generate cash flow that is positive in real terms in a demand push economy will benefit from higher sales and the economy will do well. So invest in the economy. Don't speculate. You know, it's a different it's a different type of market. Jim, this was absolutely amazing. I love the conversation. And I think it was, you know, really important at a time when the we've got inflation today, tomorrow, and we've got the Fed and all these monetary, you know, figures continuing to come out with these comments. I think it's really, really helpful way for us to think about, um, you know, how to view the economy and that the economy is different than the market, which is worth underscoring because some it's 101. I can't express, I try and tell people that all the time. And the people, it just doesn't register. Everybody's taught that, you know, DCF, the market is, you know, the economy, but we, despite, you know, evidence to the contrary at, at every turn. So, um, yeah, I think we'll get a strong demand push economy. All things considered, we'll have a cyclical recession driven by the Fed in the meantime. But uh, over the long run, this is a very, very uh, productive economy. Uh, uh, you know, we will see more production in some ways. You've got to be in the right places where you're not getting hurt by deglobalization. You're not getting hurt by in input costs and, and scarcity of resources. If you put yourself on the side of uh, of resources themselves, 
uh, things that aren't subject to, you know, that, that do well in greater de- consumer with consumer demand that's greater, particularly domestically. Uh, onshoring here in the U.S., you know, as we move away, there, there are plenty of opportunities. It's important to note, everybody's like, how do you invest if markets are going nowhere? Well, you don't just close your eyes and invest passively. You have to, active management matters again. Uh, again, I sound like the crazy guy mumbling to himself in the corner when I talk about active management. Uh, the reason passive investment came to be during this period uh, is because markets just went up because you had the Fed in your pocket. You could do 60-40 and, and it wasn't really important what alpha or what, what edge you had. Well, guess what? That That's changing uh, as, as money becomes more scarce. And so lots of opportunities when you're at the turn. Uh, that means there's an incredible amount of opportunity if you get the, the, the trends right. Um, but but it's not necessarily as easy as just putting your money in the market and going to the beach for a decade. Absolutely. Um, and we're going to try to actively help people sort of understand that and move them through the process, because um, for some people, it's been a it's been a generation. It's not something they've had to do. Jim, amazing stuff. Thank you so much. And we're definitely going to pull you on um, and and do a deep dive into what that globalization looks like, what that demand push looks like and where we can, how we can figure out how to sort of, you know, optimize those opportunities. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Look forward to coming back. Um, and thanks to all of you for the great questions. I know we just uh, scratched the surface, but believe me, we will have him back on again to, to think about that and follow up with your questions. We'll continue to bring them up. We'll be here tomorrow with Weston and Jared Dillian. So until then, take good care. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.